Questions? Okay. All right, so <laughs> let's get into the cardiovascular system. So this is, um, I was saying earlier on in the semester that as this class is technically a systems approach class, although it doesn't really look that way in the first little bit, we really start kind of rolling into that right now and that will continue straight into patho 2 where we basically hit the ground running, go system by system through the rest of the body uh, and learning the disorders. So that being said, um, what I was saying at the beginning of the semester and probably again throughout is that when we're learning about uh, the disorders in a particular unit, it is important to understand the background A and P about that particular system. And this is a great example of that. Okay, so I'll be honest with you, if you we're, we're gonna go over a brief review today, uh, but if what I'm saying in the beginning of today's lecture is going over your head, one, stop me and slow me down, okay? But, uh, but two, um, may want to go back and take a look at, at the cardiovascular anatomy, because there's some good examples in this unit of, um, especially when we get to things like, um, well, we'll see, we'll see it some tests today. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about catheterization, that kind of stuff, and see if it's really clicking. Uh, but when we start talking about things like um, congestive heart failure, it is really critical to understand the flow of, of the anatomy and what's involved where, uh, because if you don't, then things are, aren't gonna make a lot of sense and this is not the place to be doing a lot of memorizing, right? If you understand the basics of what's involved in the hearts and the valves and those kinds of things in the order, then the rest of what happens when you say, uh, part of the heart doesn't work anymore and it backflows and you start getting edema pooling somewhere, it's gonna make a lot more sense if you understand the relevant anatomy, all right? I taught most of you anatomy, so I really hope that uh, it's still rattling around in there somewhere. <coughs> okay, so <laughs> let's go through this. Um, let's get to this slide for a second. Uh, so circulatory system, we've been kind of dancing around uh, the rest of it so far. We talked a little bit about blood vessels, right? So we know that, that, uh, that you have arteries leaving the heart, you have capillaries, you have veins traveling back towards the heart, you have arteries out to the, the lungs and veins back in towards the heart. Uh, we talked about in the blood section what exactly we are pumping around, right? The fluid component and the cellular component of blood. Now we're talking about the middle and the heart itself. So it's basically a side-by-side -side pump. It's basically, the heart is essentially two pumps, right? It's a left-sided pump and a right-sided pump. They sit side-by-side -side, uh, and they work at the same time. And one is, of course, pumping blood uh, to the lungs to become oxygenated and offload carbon dioxide and water and the other side is pumping that newly oxygenated blood around to the systemic circulation to the body. So the best way to kind of visualize that to start is to uh, imagine yourself as an erythrocyte traveling through the body. So let's do that. Let's say we're just leaving the heart. <laughs> and uh, you don't actually have to visualize like magic school bus, but if that helps, then you go, you go right ahead. That's, it looks like that's what you're doing. So, uh, you're leaving the hearts, right? And you're traveling out in an artery, okay? In, under high pressure in the systemic circulation. You're gonna travel to somewhere in the body, right? It could be to an organ, it could be to an arm, it could be to a leg, doesn't really matter. You're gonna get somewhere, and as you get into the tissue, you're gonna taper down into smaller and smaller and smaller blood vessels until eventually we get to a network of capillaries. Right? We know what capillaries are. They're uh, this kind of vast network of very thin uh, uh, vessels, one cell layer thick more or less, so that we have easy diffusion of stuff in and out of the bloodstream. That's what they're for. Capillaries are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, 
end. So you're going to travel through a capillary, and then you're going to essentially drop the pressure uh, in the vessel pretty quickly. So the hydrostatic pressure of that blood is going to go from really high in the, in the, in the larger vessels, and it's going to taper off really quickly as it kind of flows out into the tissue. And then it's going to start flowing back uh, towards the heart through the venous system at a relatively low pressure. And we talked about before some of the mechanisms that we use to help you know, milk that blood back towards the heart. So you come back towards the heart in the venous system from very small venules to larger veins and larger veins and larger veins and eventually into the largest veins traveling back towards the heart. All right, so those are your vena cava. You have a superior vena cava and you have an inferior vena cava. What is the anatomical difference? What defines whether you are going to be in traveling as a red blood cell or the magic school bus in through the inferior or the superior vena cava? Yeah, exactly, right? So is there an anatomical division that, that, that's just, that tells you whether you're going to be in, in the superior or inferior? There probably is, though I'm asking that question, right? Yep. It's the diaphragm. So basically everything below the diaphragm is going to come up through the inferior vena cava, and everything from above is going to end up in the superior. Okay? There is actually one other vessel that's, uh, that drains directly into the heart, uh, venous blood, and that is the, uh, the sinus. So it's, it's the coronary sinus. Uh, in the back side of the heart that actually drains the venous blood from the heart itself. But we don't really talk about that much in this class. Now, the vena cava, both of them, are going to drain into uh, which chamber of the heart? This needs to happen like that. <laughs> right atrium. Good. This is what I was talking about. Okay, so let's refresh. So the heart is basically two pumps side by side. Okay, on the tops you have the atrium, on the bottoms you have the ventricles. Okay. Whenever blood comes into the heart, it's always into the atria first, and then it's ejected from the atria into the ventricle, then it's ejected from the ventricle out to wherever it's going. And on the right side of the heart, that means it's traveling towards the lungs, and from the left side of the heart, that means it's traveling towards the rest of the body, the systemic circulation. Okay? So think of it that way, right? Atria stacked on top of ventricles side by side. So if you are venous, relatively deoxygenated blood, you're coming back into the right, uh, the right atrium, uh, and then you're going to be pushed into the right ventricle. Now on that way from the right atrium to the right ventricle, there is a valve in the way. Okay? There's a valve separating the right atrium from the right ventricle. What is it called? Tricuspid valve. Good. Okay? The easier name for that is actually the right atrioventricular valve. But on a test, I'd probably say tricuspid just because, just because. All right? So you have to know both names. Okay? Right atrioventricular valve, tricuspid valve are the same thing. Perfect. If you're on the left side of the heart and you're coming in from the lungs into the left atrium, you're going to pass through a valve into the left ventricle. What is that valve called? The mitral valve, good, or the bicuspid valve or the left atrioventricular valve. There's three names for, the, for that same valve uh, between the left atrium and the left ventricle. Okay. So again, let's go back to the right side. So you're, uh, you're in the venous circulation. You came into the right atrium. You went through the tricuspid valve to the right ventricle. Then you're going to exit that right ventricle through another valve. Pulmonary. The pulmonary valve. Exactly. Pulmonary valve heading towards the pulmonary trunk, which is going to branch off into right and left pulmonary arteries. All right, so one to the right lung, one to the left lung, and that's from there going to branch into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller uh, pulmonary arteries, eventually ending up in a network of capillaries 
in the lungs. And then it's going to start with, uh, it's going to come around and begin with very small pulmonary veins, coalescing into larger and larger pulmonary veins as they head back towards the left side of the heart. Okay, does anybody remember how many pulmonary veins there are that head into the left atrium? It's a good guess, but no? There are four, yeah. Four heading back in. So if you ever flip the back uh, heart model around, you'll see four holes in the back of the right, or left atrium, excuse me. Okay, so again, from the left atrium, we're going to travel through what we said a second ago, that's uh, mitral slash bicuspid slash left AV valve into the left ventricle, uh, which is the biggest, thickest, strong uh, chamber of the heart, because why? It does the most work, right? Well, I mean, ultimately, all the chambers are going to pump all the blood, but it does the most work. It's the thickest because the heart is a muscle, right? It, 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 as any muscle does, when you work it more, it gets stronger. And what it's working to push against is the greatest resistance because you're pumping from the left ventricle into a high-pressure arterial system. And so it's pumping against the resistance of the aorta. Good. There's one last valve to pass through on its way from the left ventricle into the aorta. That is, of course, the... Aortic valve, perfect. Very good. None of that is new, right? Do you have any questions about the basic flow yet? All right. Good. So let's talk a bit more about the heart itself briefly. Okay. The heart is going to have a few layers. So let's do the, um, the, 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 in the, it's really analogous to the, uh, the, the simplest way I can put this is the three basic layers of the heart are pretty analogous to the three layers of the blood vessels, right? So you have your tunica intima, you have your tunica media, and your tunica adventitia, okay? So let's talk about the, what would be the same as the tunica media in the, in the blood vessels, which in blood vessels is, what, what do you find in it? Muscle, and then that's the same thing you find in the heart. That's the actual myocardium. So that would be the thickest layer of the heart wall, right? Myocardium, heart, muscle. Good, so that would be this, nice and thick. So let's pretend this is here on the left is inside uh, one of the chambers of the heart. So let's pretend it's hollow instead of full of blood. Okay, so lining the inside of that chamber, you're gonna have what's essentially similar to the tunic intima, which is the endocardium, right? Endo inside cardium heart. So the endocardium is the, is the uh, protective um, uh, layer that inside the heart. And, and similar to the inner layer of blood vessels, it's very thin layer of squamous cells, okay? That's actually continuous with the valves, um, and we'll actually talk about that in a particular disorder later on, an infection. Uh, so that's one layer, endocardium. Uh, second layer, myocardium. Third layer, is the epicardium, okay? Endo, myo, epi, outside. Uh, relating, again, endo and epi relating to that middle muscular layer. So this is where it gets a little touch more complicated, okay? Because the epicardium is, has, it also has a different name, okay? Um, the epicardium is the first layer of this larger structure that surrounds the heart and protects it called the pericardium, right? Para meaning around. And the first part that's the protective layer is one example uh, that we've seen uh, of something that we've talked about in the past, which is our double-layered serous membranes that we use for protection around certain organs, right? We know some other ones, some similar structures. 
There's one that surrounds each lung. It's called the pleura. Good, exactly right. So a similar kind of structure, right? We have our visual of you have a um, uh, for any of our double layer serous membranes, we have uh, think of a balloon, all right, and then you stick a fist inside of it. So in this analogy, the fist is the organ, all right. So imagine a balloon and you shove a heart inside of that inflated balloon. Okay, so what's going to happen is it's going to double back on itself. So now what you have is two layers of something surrounding that organ or this heart. And so in between those two layers of the serous membrane, you're going to have serous fluid, right? What's serous fluid? Just watery fluid, right? It's watery fluid, not a heck of a lot of anything else, okay? So exactly right. So I'll, I'll draw it uh, in this example. Uh, as a double back membrane just like that. But imagine it's, it's really going to envelop the entirety of the heart. So in between those two layers, there should be a tiny thin amount of fluid, not much else. Okay? We call it the pericardial, uh, the pericardial space, or, or in, the, in the lungs, the pleural cavity. But it really, it's a potential space. Like there's, it's not a big open space. If there is a lot of space there, something has gone wrong. And that's actually something we'll talk about later. But for now, okay. Remember that that's a double layer. So the innermost layer, which is the epicardium that I was talking about a second ago, when you have endocardium, myocardium, epicardium, that innermost layer, the epicardium, is the same thing as the innermost layer of that double layer membrane. And when you have any double layered serous membrane in the body, whether it's around the heart or around the lungs or around the abdomen, the inner layer is always called the visceral layer, and the outer layer is always called the Parietal layer, good, okay? So that's where you get the things on this list here of parietal pericardium and visceral pericardium. That's this one. Oh, excuse me. Does that make sense? All right. And then around that, you're going to have one more layer, okay? And that is uh, the outermost layer of the, of the pericardial sac, and it is a fibrous pericardium. So fibrous meaning it's fibrous tissue. It doesn't stretch very much. It's basically this protective bag around the outside of the rest of the heart. Uh, it doesn't expand. And so there are some implications there. If for some reason you have a lot of swelling inside of it, it can actually cause compression on the heart rather than expanding anymore. Uh, but we'll get to that at a later time. All right. Now, uh, we touched on the valves uh, a second ago. So we have four valves in the heart, right? Two AV valves, uh, also the tricuspid slash bicuspid valves. And the two semilunar valves, those are your uh, pulmonary and aortic valves. Also in the heart, uh, the left and right side, like I said earlier, it's basically you know, two pumps side by side. Um, they are separated by this mus thick muscular wall in the middle called the septum. Okay, you can technically uh, divide the septum into the interatrial septum and the interventricular septum, but really it's one thick muscular wall. And that will become relevant when we talk about certain heart defects uh, later next week or, or the following week. Because sometimes you can have a hole in that septum and blood can move in a direction that it's not necessarily supposed to. Okay, now this is all um, uh, muscle, right? and so it's electrically active. And so in the heart, 
We have a very well-coordinated electrical conduction system. Uh, the conduction pathway is going to uh, transmit electrical impulses in a coordinated way throughout the heart so that it, it contracts in the manner that we want it to. You don't want to just send one big electrical impulse to the heart and have it all contract all at once. That wouldn't work, okay? Because you need, essentially, what you want is the atria to contract first and then the ventricles. So we need this coordinated pathway and some special things along it to make that happen. Now, again, back to that visual of two side-by-side -side pumps, okay? Atria on the top, ventricles on the bottom. The left and right atria should contract at the same time, okay? So it's atria together, then ventricles together after a short delay. And that should make sense when we go, when we review the filling aspect of this. And that's also why you don't want it all to contract all at once, because you need to eject the contents of the atria into the ventricles, then eject the ventricles shortly after to move that blood out. If that didn't happen in that order, then you wouldn't get efficient flow. Does that make sense? Okay, so the conduction pathway looks like so. It's the green stuff on that diagram, and it flows in a, a very particular order, and there's a couple structures that you need to know. First is the pacemaker of the heart, okay, the sinoatrial or SA note. Where exactly is that found? Good, yeah, it's in the wall at the top of the right atrium. Perfect. Okay, so that's the pacemaker of the heart. <laughs> um, why is it the pacemaker? Anybody remember? Right, actually, and both should actually contract at the same time, right and left. Yeah. But why not somewhere else in the heart? Because there are other spots in the heart that, that, uh, that will beat on their own, right? If you, there are certain cells, if you take out of the heart and put them in, theoretically, put them on a petri dish with everything they need to live, they're autorhythmic, which means they will beat on their own. Okay? There are a bunch of these throughout the heart, but why the SA node? Not quite, not quite. It's actually because it's the fastest. It's the, it's the fastest natural pacemaker of the heart. So basically it sets the, the resting sinus rhythm because it happens to contract more regularly than any of the other spots that might otherwise do it. So it's the starting point, uh, and it's going to send an electrical signal which is going to be transmitted along this very discrete electrical pathway. So it's going to go from, if I skip to this picture here, from that SA node, down the atrium, and again, in doing so, contracting both atria at the same time, to the AV node, okay? Atrioventricular node, which is found in the floor of the right atrium, okay? So the AV node has a very important job. Does anybody know what that is? Perfect, perfect. So it delays the signal transmission, why? Perfect. Exactly right. Right. So you, you want the AV node to very slightly delay that signal transmission uh, because it allows that brief moment for the atria to, to contract and eject their blood before the ventricles to uh, contract. Uh, and so you have that coordinated pathway mechanism that we were discussing earlier. Good. Okay, so after the AV node, uh, then we're going uh, to run through the AV bundle. Okay, that's also called the bundle of his. Uh, it basically travels down the, sem the septum, right, the interventricular septum, uh, and it's going to branch into uh, left and right 
branches, bundle branches. Uh, the right going to the right side of the heart, of course, and the left going to the left side of the heart. Okay. Now, if you consider the, the electrical pathway of the heart here, starting up in the right atrium, going down to the floor of the right atrium, down the septum, uh, it's going to get to basically the apex of the heart. And then there's all this muscle mass up in these directions that hasn't been innervated yet. So uh, essentially, the nerve fibers have to turn and come back up the walls of the, uh, of the heart. And the last little distal nerve endings uh, we call Purkinje fibers. Okay, so that direction change that happens as, it, as the signal goes to the apex and back up actually matters, and we're going to see that demonstrated uh, visually in that uh, ECG readout here. Okay, uh, but these are all pretty clear. This is nothing new, right? All right, good. Um, so let's talk about this ECG readout, right? What does ECG stand for? Electrocardiogram, right? Don't mix up electrocardiogram with echocardiogram. That's a different thing. So electrocardiogram uh, is where you put uh, leads on the chest and you're measuring the electrical activity of the heart. Now, to be totally fair, um, it's a lot more complicated than this. Um, depending on which leads and w uh, that you're reading, you can get all sorts of different re readings of the various different locations and directions of the electrical signals through the heart. So this is kind of the most commonly uh, represented ECG readout, and this is the simplest one that we're going to look at. Um, it's basically a composite. It, it's you take all the different uh, uh, things that you read from the ECG, and you basically put them all together to give you this composite image, and that's what we see here. So you're responsible for the basics of what's going on in this ECG. That means you have the P wave, the QRS complex, and the T wave. So what those mean is represented right here. <clears throat> so the P wave, that first wave you see, uh, is the depolarization of the atria. Remember we talked about um, uh, action potentials and nerves way back in anatomy. You have, if it's something, if it's electrically active, it's going to depolarize. And then it's going to have to repolarize. And you, you're going to pick up electrical signals that represent each of those. Okay? So the first wave is the depolarization of the atria. Um, and then the next thing, the big thing uh, that you see, is that, that big QRS complex. Okay? And that represents mostly the depolarization of the ventricles. What it also represents, which is not on your slide, which you should be adding on right now, is that the QRS complex also represents the repolarization of the atria. We just don't really see it because it's obscured by the massive depolarization of the ventricles because there's such bulky uh, mass. Okay, so P wave, depolarization of atria, QRS complex, depolarization of ventricles, and repolarization of atria. T wave is the repolarization of the ventricles. Yes. Can that be measured if the leads are flowing differently? Yes, it can. Yeah. If you actually, if you look at a real ECG, there's going to be multiple readouts, and you're going to be able to, if you if you if you know what you're doing, you're going to be able to get much more detailed information by looking at different components of that. Okay. So far, so good. Questions? All right. So we're going to watch a video really quick. And then we'll come back to this. And I'm going to have something to comment on here. The cardiac conduction system. That's not right. Hold on a sec. So the following components. The sinoatrial node, or SA node, located in the right atrium near the entrance of the superior vena cava. This is the natural pacemaker of the heart. 
It initiates all heartbeat and determines heart rate. Electrical impulses from the SA node spread throughout both atria and stimulate them to contract. The atrioventricular node, or AV node, located on the other side of the right atrium near the AV valve. The AV node serves as electrical gateway to the ventricles. It delays electrical impulses to the ventricles. This delay is to ensure that the atria have ejected all the blood into the ventricles before the ventricles contract. The AV node receives signals from the SA node and passes them onto the atrioventricular bundle, AV bundle, or bundle of his. This bundle is then divided into right and left bundle branches, which conduct the impulses toward the apex of the heart. The signals are then passed onto Purkinje fibers, turning upward and spreading throughout the ventricular myocardium. Electrical activities of the heart can be recorded in the form of electrocardiogram, ECG, or EKG. An ECG is a composite recording of all the action potentials produced by the nodes and the cells of the myocardium. One quick sec. Uh, they're showing in that diagram there uh, not only the waves but also the segments, the spots in between them. You're not responsible for those segments in our class, just the waves. Each wave or segment of the ECG corresponds to a certain event of the cardiac electrical cycle. When the atria are full of blood, the SA node fires, electrical signals spread throughout the atria and cause them to depolarize. This is represented by the P wave on the ECG. Atrial contraction or atrial starts about 100 milliseconds after the P wave begins. The PQ segment represents the time the signals travel from the SA node to the AV node. The QRS complex marks the firing of the AV node and represents ventricular depolarization. Q-wave corresponds to depolarization of the interventricular septum. R-wave is produced by depolarization of the main mass of the ventricles. S-wave represents the last phase of ventricular depolarization at the base of the heart. Atrial repolarization also occurs during this time, but the signal is obscured by the large QRS complex. The ST segment reflects the plateau in the myocardial action potential. This is when the ventricles contract. The T wave represents ventricular repolarization immediately before ventricular relaxation or ventricular diastole. The cycle repeats itself with every heartbeat. Uh, if I'm ever as boring as that guy, just tell me and I'll, I'll quit. I'll quit on the spot. Okay? Uh, so I did want to point something else out because we're going to get to it in a second. Um, does anybody have any questions about the electrical pathway there? It makes pretty good sense? Okay. The visual is a little bit confusing um, when you look at the actual blood flow, though, because it's not accurate. The electrical pathway is perfectly fine, but the, but the blood flow is not. So I wanted you to watch that uh, closely again. If you watch right here. I'll mute him. Watch what's happening. So the, the blue blood here is in the, in the right atrium, and the uh, red is in the left atrium. 
So what it's showing is an empty ventricle and an, atria, an atrium pumping blood into that ventricle. <laughs> and that is not accurate. That's not what happens in the heart. So what, sh what really happens is that those ventricles are about 70% full before the atria push blood into them. So the vast majority, about two-thirds of the filling of the ventricles happens passively when the heart's relaxed. Okay? What's the relaxation phase of the heart called? Diastole, good. Okay, so you have systole, the contraction phase, and diastole, the re relaxation, re relaxation phase. So when the heart is in diastole, it's relaxed, is there blood coming into it? Of course there is, right? That's when it has to happen. So blood is coming in both from the lungs into the, into, into the left side of the heart and from the body, the vena cava, into the right side of the heart. And as the atria fill with blood, there gets to a point where there's so much blood in the atria that it opens up the valves. There's a pressure, a fluid pressure in the atria that opens the valves, pushes them open, and blood starts pouring into the ventricles. So this is all happening during the rest phase. And so about two-thirds of the ventricles are going to be full by the time there's any contraction during systole at all. So what the more accurate uh, representation would look like is that they're mostly full, the atria contract and top up the ventricles, and then the ventricles contract and inject all of it out into their respective arteries. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Very good. <clears throat> so we talked about um, uh, kind of sinus rhythm of the heart controlled by the SA node, uh, and that's kind of your basic kind of baseline resting rate of the heart. But of course, we can manipulate that. We can change it. Um, it happens all day long every day, right? Your heart is not usually staying at the same pace and same force all the time. It depends on what the demands are, right? So for example, if you're at rest, you have a much lower demand of your cardiac output versus if you're exercising, you need it to work harder and faster. So we have control mechanisms for that. So the basic cardiac control center is in the medulla, which is a part of the brainstem, of course, okay? Um, and that's going to control the basic rate and force of, the, uh, of contraction of the heart to begin with. <laughs> We're also going to be constantly detecting, uh, get, getting information about what's going on as blood's leaving the heart. And one of the things that, that the body monitors is blood pressure. <laughs> and if the blood pressure needs to change, uh, then we can get that feedback and send it to the heart to, in order to change it. But in order to know to do that, we have to have a reading of what the blood pressure is. So to, to, excuse me, to detect blood pressure in the body, we have baroreceptors, right? Baro meaning pressure. Thinking of a, think about a barometer, okay? So the baroreceptors uh, are actually in a convenient location just outside of the heart, uh, embedded in the walls of the aorta and the carotid arteries, okay? So not very far from the heart, uh, and it's going to be constantly measuring the pressure of the blood as it's traveling through those vessels. All right, so <clears throat> let's say we, uh, the, the, the brain wants the heart to, uh, to slow down, okay? So we want to, to decrease the heart rate. Um, it's going to do that through parasympathetic stimulation, right? Remember our autonomic nervous system composed of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems? We've talked about this a bunch of times in a bunch of classes. Um, sympathetic is going to increase heart rates and force contraction. Parasympathetic is going to decrease those things. So the parasympathetic one is pretty straightforward. The primary parasympathetic innervation to the heart is the cranial nerve. Uh, excuse me, the cranial nerve. 
the vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10. It's been a long day. So that is a uh, cranial nerve that branches directly off of, the, off of the medulla, heads down to the heart, tells it to slow down if necessary, and then eventually it's going to travel all the way down to the abdomen, and we know that it's the primary parasympathetic stimulation to all the guts, and that's something we'll discuss in another class. Uh, the sympathetic, oh sorry, um, if, you were to, uh, if you were to sever the, the, uh, the vagus nerve stimulation to the heart, it resting rate would go up to about 100 beats per minute. So the vagus nerve is always kind of down-regulating the, uh, the normal rate that the heart wants to beat at. All right. um, on the other end, conversely, the sympathetic stimulation of the heart, uh, so through the sympathetic nervous system, is through a different nerve. It's called the cardiac accelerator nerve. So this means that it's through the sympathetic nervous system, so it's got a little bit more of a convoluted pathway to get to the heart. Um, anything that's sympathetic, uh, it goes uh, from the brain down to the spinal cord, then it branches out in the thoracic region. There's a bunch of thoracic sympathetic ganglia in the back of the thorax, and then you have a bunch of nerves branching off of there. So that's where the cardiac accelerator nerves come from. But that part of it, you're not responsible for our test or anything like that. It, the basic stuff, sympathetic nervous system through the cardiac acceler accelerator nerve increases heart rate and force of contraction. Vagus nerve for the PNS decreases it. Anything disrupt that? You meant the vagus nerve getting Disrupted. Can anything disrupt the uh, sympathetic stimulation? Sure can. Sure can. Um, so, so the vagus nerve disruption, I, w I, I gave you a, a bit of a ridiculous example where I said you could sever it. But uh, maybe I'll give you an actually more realistic example. Uh, what if you have a spinal cord injury? Right? So a spinal cord injury not only uh, affects the things that are below it as far as motor and sensory, but it also impairs the um, sympathetic uh, effect below it. So that has some real significant uh, problems that it leads into. So stuff that we'll actually talk about in the neuro section of patho too. Okay? Um, if anybody's ever heard of autonomic dysreflexia, it's related to that. Okay, so um, of course we want the heart to be able to speed up and slow down according to our demands and so there's all sorts of situations and stimuli that you'll encounter uh, that can do that. Some of the basics off this list uh, if you had the presence of increased thyroid hormone, that would jack up your heart rate, right? What do we think of, what's the one word you think of when you think of thyroid hormone? Metabolism, right? It's, it's the driver of our basal metabolic rate. It's kind of, it's the metabolic, it stokes the metabolic furnace, right? The rate at which chemical reactions occur in, our, in the cells of our body. Uh, also, epinephrine, right? What's the other word for epinephrine? Adrenaline, exactly, okay? And again, released under the uh, influence of the sympathetic nervous system, but it'll jack up heart rate, force contraction. Uh, your heart rate will also uh, increase uh, when you have a fever, right? Say if you have an infection, or if your uh, body temperature is otherwise elevated, say uh, you are in a hot environment, okay? Your body will, your, your uh, heart rate will naturally increase. Uh, if you exert yourself physically, right, of course your, heart's gonna, your heart rate's going to increase. That's what you want it to do. If I'm standing here, I don't need uh, you know, a ton of blood being delivered to my tissues. But if I were to start sprinting down the hallway, all of a sudden I have this increased demand. I need my heart to beat faster and harder. That makes sense. Um, it'll also increase with smoking, uh, pregnancy, pain, stress response, a pile of other different examples. Okay. 
Now, let's look at the, the circulation uh, to the heart itself, OK? Um, the, the coronary circulation is the, are the blood vessels that supply the actual heart tissue itself. Does anybody know where the word coronary comes from? Mm -hmm, exactly, around, right? Think of a crown, right? Think of a coronation, right? A crown, because the coronary vessels basically sit kind of like a crown around the heart. So uh, the basics, you have two primary coronary arteries, a right that goes to the right side of the heart and a left that goes to the left side of the heart. Uh, let's look at where they, uh, where they branch off from first. They actually are the very first branches off of the aorta itself. Okay, so you have, this would be the aortic valve you're looking at, right? One, two, right here. It's actually kind of interesting how they get their blood flow. Remember um, I said that uh, the, the valves have these cusps. So basically when, uh, when the left ventricle contracts, blood uh, goes through that aortic valve, pushes it open, and then when it relaxes, the valve snaps shut, and these little cusp shapes kind of act like uh, cups, and the blood settles and pours into those coronary arteries, left and right. So the heart's a little greedy, right? It takes its supply first. Now uh, we have left and right, uh, and then there's going to be uh, two primary branches of each of those, okay? So on the left side of the heart, we have, uh, it's going to branch into two main vessels, the anterior interventricular artery, which goes exactly where it's telling you it goes, anterior between the ventricles. It's also called the left anterior descending, which again describes exactly what's happening. It's on the left side of the heart, on the front, and it's descending from the top to bottom. Okay? The other branch is the circumflex artery. Circumflex means it bends around, and that's what it does. It bends around and supplies the back side of the left side of the heart. Okay? That uh, anterior interventricular or left anterior descending, by the way, uh, is pretty important. Not that any of these vessels are unimportant, uh, but that one in particular is because it's supplying the biggest, thickest part of the heart, right? the left ventricle. And so uh, um, a significant blockage of that vessel in particular also has the colloquial term a widowmaker blockage because that blockage, understandably, uh, makes your prognosis not the best. Right? Because you're talking about blocking blood flow to the part of the heart that's sending blood to the entire body. Okay? On the right side of the heart, right, we have the right coronary artery, and it's going to branch into our two major vessels. Uh, the posterior interventricular, that's this one that kind of fades as it's showing it's wrapping around the back, and the right marginal. Okay? So two main vessels off of each uh, of the left and right coronary arteries. Now after that, they're going to branch into smaller and smaller vessels as supplies the entirety of the heart. None of those names from anything else you're responsible for at all. Um, but the thing to take away from this is that there is not a lot of collateral circulation in the heart. Right? Collateral circulation means alternate routes of delivery. So in certain tissues you'll have, say, a blood vessel here and a blood vessel there that they both might be able to deliver blood to this tissue. So if one happens to be blocked, then it still might get some blood flow from somewhere else. That doesn't really exist to any significant extent in the heart, which means if you block any one of these vessels, the, the part of the heart that was supplied by that vessel is going to become ischemic. All right? And if it becomes ischemic to a significant degree, then what can happen to it? 
it can die, right? It can become necrotic, right? So, so we talked about uh, you know, ischemia of any tissue being painful, right? Ischemic pain. What is temporary, so transient ischemic heart pain called? Angina, exactly. All right, we'll talk about that uh, later on in this unit, not today. Um, conversely, if you were to have an, a complete blockage of any blood vessel somewhere in the body, what's the term for that? Infarction, right? right? Infarction is a complete blockage that could lead to <coughs> the death of that tissue. And so, of course, in the heart, we talk about myocardial infarction, right? MI, or heart attack. And we'll get to that later for sure. Any questions about the circulation? Okay. We don't talk about veins in here, but there's obviously venous circulation as well that drains it all back um, into the uh, right atrium. Uh, we know we talked about these terms already, <laughs> systole and diastole. Systole is the contraction of the, heart, of the myocardium, the heart tissue, the heart muscle tissue, excuse me. And diastole is the relaxation of that tissue, and that cycles back and forth. So this is what I was referring to earlier <laughs> when I said that the, pic, the, the visuals of the blood flow in that, uh, in that YouTube video is not the best, okay? So um, this image here starts with diastole, so the heart is relaxed. And as I was saying, the, uh, the, during relaxation, that's the time where blood's going to enter the heart. So it's going to come in through, uh, into the atria, and when they sufficiently fill up, blood's going to start pouring into the ventricles as well. So about two-thirds or so of the ventricles are going to be full before any contraction of the atria happens at all. Okay, so then you begin systole, and again, because of that coordinated electrical pathway of the heart, we have atria contract first, then ventricles, partly due to that delay of the AV node. So the atria contract, right, atrial systole, they squeeze their contents, uh, and the, it's ejected into the ventricles. Then the ventricles contract and, excuse me, eject that blood from the heart. All right. And then we're back into the relaxation phase of diastole, and it cycles back and forth. Now, <laughs> I'm going to start to get into some of the things you can observe about the heart. You guys have done an assessment? Okay, good. So you've done auscultation? Perfect. All right, so I'm sure you've heard the lub-dub sounds. Um, lub-dub is the sounds you, you're normally supposed to hear in the heart. There's more complicated names, S1, S2, those kinds of sounds. We're not going to get into that in this class. Just the basics. The lub is the uh, simultaneous, but not really, closure of the AV valves. And the dub is the simultaneous, but not really, closure of the semilunar valves. Okay? Um, um, if you hear a murmur, that means that the valves didn't crisply snap shut the way they should. They're a little bit incompetent, don't quite close or close slowly, and you get maybe regurgitation or altered blood flow through them, and you can hear that. Um, these should be familiar to you then if you've done auscultation. All right, <laughs> so the mains, uh, the, this, uh, easy, this primary sites for auscultation for the heart, one for each of the, uh, where you can best hear each of the valves. So for the, uh, what do we have first here? Uh, that is, yeah, so for the aortic valve, you have the uh, um, right sternal border in the second intercostal space. Pulmonary valve you have right across on the left sternal border. Um, interesting, if you, if you, depending on the textbook you look at, um, the, the point for the tricuspid valve 
uh, might actually differ a little bit. Um, sometimes it's called uh, to be the location is it's always the left stoner border. Uh, sometimes it's said to be in the fourth intercostal space. Sometimes it's called to be in the fifth intercostal space. Sometimes it's just called distal sternum on the left sternal border. So that you may see some differences there. Okay, one sec. And then um, for the mitral valve, you have uh, in the fifth intercostal space in the mid-clavicular line, so kind of somewhere down closer to the nipple. Again, those sites are not directly over top of the valves. It just happens that because of the acoustics of the heart, those are the best places to hear it. There's also another point here in the middle uh, called Herb's point, which is uh, left sternal border on the, uh, in the third intercostal space. Your question, yeah. Oh, no, I was just saying all three. Right. Okay. <laughs> all right, pulse, of course, we know that. Pulse is uh, going to be, um, I mean, you're going to get a pulse of blood through the ar arteries every time you have uh, um, a left ventricular systole. Uh, cardiac output, so I use that term a couple times. It basically means um, the blood that's being ejected from the heart during a particular period of time. So really straightforward uh, uh, calculation for that. Skip ahead here. Cardiac output uh, is heart rate times stroke volume. So how often the heart beats uh, in a minute and how much blood is being ejected from the heart with each contraction. So uh, it's a nice easy kind of ballpark estimate at rest. Uh, the average human being, whatever that is, uh, has approximately uh, five liters of cardiac output per minute. Okay, if that gives you some kind of visual. And the breakdown of that would be if you had about a resting heart rate of 70 beats per minute and a stroke volume of 70 milliliters per beat. So you know, if you have a kind of a regular water bottle, like uh, one, non, well, one seventh of that. Uh, so it's a fairly small amount at rest. Uh, that gives you 4,900 mils, or about five milliliters. Five liters, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there are ways to do stroke to figure out stroke volume specifically, uh, but they're kind of complicated uh, um, equations, and you can do it best with uh, cardiac catheterization. Is it like standard assessment? No, if you could do it in a cath lab. Or um, I think, I believe you can estimate it with an echocardiogram. I'm not 100% certain on that. OK. A uh, couple terms. Sorry? Are going to have to be able to approximate that? No. A uh, no. um, couple terms you might run into at some point, preload and afterload. It's basically relates to pressure. Um, preload is, the, is the, the load, basically, that's coming, yeah, the pressure that's coming into the heart through the venous system. And the afterload is basically um, the pressure that the ventricles have to overcome in order to pump blood out. So it's the pressure of the arterial system against which the ventricles have to eject blood. Uh, in your assessment class, you would have done it. You would have hopefully palpated the majority, at least, of, of these arteries. Yes. Okay. So all places superficially where you can where you can uh, find a pulse um, uh, fairly effectively. Uh, you have in the neck, of course, the carotids. Um, technically speaking, <laughs> um, <clears throat> if you wanted complete accuracy, that might not be the best place to, uh, to uh, push, only because we said earlier there's those baroreceptors that are built into the carotid artery. So technically, if you push on the carotid artery, you're going to engage those baroreceptors, and the heart function might actually change. But 
to be totally re I mean, honest, if it's an emergency situation, you need to pulse and go for it. Absolutely, right? But um, elsewise, uh, brachial, right? That's a big one. You need to find the brachial artery when you're doing uh, when you're doing blood pressure, of course. Uh, that's also the spot where you would do uh, where you would check baby's pulses. Uh, in adults, of course, the radial artery peripherally. Um, in the lower extremities, the femoral and the groin, uh, the popliteal artery and behind the knee, which is uh, the bane of a lot of students when they're learning, right? It's not easy to find, but it is valuable to be able to find, right? Are you shaking your heads? You've been through this, okay? Uh, it's, good, it's good to practice. Um, say if there's, for example, uh, trauma. So somebody has a femoral fracture, right? Broken femurs are sharp. Uh, and they can potentially lacerate the femoral artery, so it would be nice to be able to see if there is a pulse distal uh, to that fracture. Um, farther down the extremities, you have the posterior tibial and dorsalis pedis uh, arteries, and those are useful to be able to find, um, especially in your patients who are dealing with um, peripheral vascular disease. So you're looking at blood flow to the extremities. Uh, up here, um, facial, not very commonly palpated, but you can if you want to. It's kind of around the, uh, the angle of the mandible here. Uh, basically, if you're gentle and you come forward just a little bit, you f you'll feel the pulse right about there. And the last one, superficial, is the superficial temporal, right, exactly where it sounds like in the temporal region. <coughs> All right. So blood pressure, right? Uh, of course, when you're measuring blood pressure, you have two numbers. <coughs> Systolic blood pressure, which is the higher one, and that represents the pressure that is as a result of the contraction of the ventricles, systole, and you have the diastolic blood pressure, which is the resting pressure in the vessels uh, in between pulses of blood. Okay, there should always be some pressure in the vessels, of course. Uh, changes in blood pressure, a bunch of this before. I'm hoping not to have to go over it. I will if I have to, but you guys are gonna tell me if we need to or not. Um, we know that the autonomic nervous system can influence blood pressure, so say in a stress response. Um, we know that uh, if the sympathetic nervous system is, is engaged, right, is, is active, then you're going to increase blood pressure. You're trying to deliver blood to uh, skeletal muscles and other places that are necessary for physical activity and survival. That means you're going to have, uh, although you're having vasodilation to the skeletal muscles, you're having generalized vasoconstriction. So if you have generalized vasoconstriction all throughout the body, you take all the vessels and you start narrowing them, what happens to blood pressure? Goes up, right? Inversely, if the opposite happens, you have generalized vasodilation, blood pressure will go down, right? Uh, and that, um, that kind of idea is what we will discuss uh, towards the end of this unit, uh, one, of our last, one of our last topics, uh, when we talk about shock, okay? Blood pressure is, of course, proportional to blood volume, right? So more blood volume equals more blood pressure. Should make sense. Uh, so that means if you are retaining fluids, your blood pressure is going to be relatively higher. Or if you have lost a bunch of fluid, so you are significantly dehydrated. Or if you have had a major bleed, of course, your blood pressure is going to be way down. The hormones, right? This is where it can get a little bit more complicated. We have covered this, I don't know how many times. So. Do we need to go over the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? We good? We sure? Okay, answer me this then. If you, if you pass the test, we can move on. All right, what is the stimulus 
for initiating the renin angiotensin aldosterone system? Low blood pressure, as detected by the kidneys and specifically the Good, good, okay, perfect, you guys remember, awesome. So JG cells release renin, renin angi uh, interacts with uh, angiotensinogen, uh, turns it into um, uh, angiotensin 1, which is converted to angiotensin 2 by angiotensin converting enzyme. Angiotensin 2 acts on the body in order to increase blood pressure, all right? So the stimulus is low blood pressure into the system. The output is high blood pressure. It should exist in a negative feedback loop so that when the goal is accomplished of raising blood pressure, it shuts itself off. Really quick, what are the mechanisms by which that system increases blood pressure? Remember, it's the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So there's a big hint. Aldosterone is released, right, from the adrenal glands. Good. And that increases uh, retention of, of, uh, of sodium and fluids from the kidneys, so BP goes up. All right, you also cause systemic vasoconstriction, so BP goes up. And there's one more hormone that's released. It's on the slide right in front of you. ADH, which makes you pee less. That means less fluid out, stays in the body. Blood volume is up, blood pressure is up. Where is ADH released from? Perfect. You pass. I don't have to draw it on the board. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break until 10 minutes, uh, until 10 after, and then we'll talk about some uh, some tests. And we're back. Okay, so uh, most of the rest of today, we're not we're going to get into many specific disorders today, but we're going to we are going to talk about some tests. So, some of the things that you might run into when you're uh, when you're testing for uh, for particular cardiovascular disorders. Uh, so first, we've touched on a bunch already, is uh, electrocardiography, ECG. You sometimes also may, might hear it called EKG. They're the exact same thing. It's the German spelling, so a cardio with a K. But they're the same thing. So obviously very, very useful uh, for, uh, diagnostics, uh, purposes, for diagnostic purposes, uh, see what's going on electrically in the heart, uh, as well as monitoring ongoing progress uh, of particular disorders. So, um, you can see things like dysrhythmias, so alterations in the electrical conductivity of the heart. We're going to talk about a few of those uh, next week. Uh, you, can see exist, uh, you can see evidence of previous MI, so previous heart attack. Uh, you can see, if you know what you're looking for, you can see evidence of pericarditis, so um, inflammation of the pericardium, and a few other things. So um, there's a bunch of ways this can be done, and there's kind of standards, uh, you know, six leads. Uh, there's ones where you can do different numbers of leads. You can wear a Holter monitor and kind of take it around with you. If, you're, if it's an event that only happens every once in a while and you're trying to catch it over the course of a period of time, there's a bunch of ways this can be done, uh, all really, really valuable. Auscultation we touched on already, and you guys have done this. This is, you use those, uh, those uh, landmarks on the chest. You're listening for the various different valves, uh, and you can, you're listening for things like, uh, uh, like murmurs, et cetera. Uh, echocardiogram. Uh, the best way I can describe an echo is it's essentially like an ultrasound for your heart. Uh, so you can get information about blood flow through the heart, about uh, integrity of the valves, and general ideas about uh, cardiac output. So super useful. 
Uh, a stress test is not usually something you'll do by itself. It's usually something you'll do in combination with another test like an ECG. So maybe somebody has um, a cardiac condition that is hard to pin down and it only happens when they are exerting themselves. Well, then you know, make them exert themselves. So you strap them in with an EKG and you make them you know, ride a bike or run a treadmill and see if you can elicit that, uh, that event. Okay, uh, imaging as far as um, uh, radiation goes. So a chest x-ray can be used as a really basic screening procedure. Um, you, again, the heart is soft tissue, it's muscle, right? So you can't get any detail at all about what's going on in the heart. But what you can see is the shadow of the heart. So you can get a general sense of size and location of the heart within the chest, uh, which gives you kind of some basic starting point information. Um, when you get into things like tomography, then you can get better you know, 3D imaging, which can be really useful. Uh, there's also uh, nuclear imaging uh, where you do perfusion studies. So you use, say, a radioactive um, substance that you put into the blood, and then you can monitor the, where it's emitting radiation from and get ideas about how, uh, how well the different parts of the heart are being perfused with blood. Okay. Um, Cardiac catheterization. So this is really useful, right? It's got to be done in a controlled environment, usually you know, in a cath lab. Um, there's a bunch of things that you can do, accomplish with this, um, depending on, so basically the idea is, whatever you're doing, you have to snake a catheter into somewhere in, inside or close to the heart, depending on what it is that you're looking for. That means you're putting a catheter in a blood vessel and, and kind of snaking it through, uh, and we're going to touch on that, uh, what that entails in, in two seconds. Um, so it can give you some really uh, valuable information about the pressure that the various different chambers of the heart are exerting. Um, you can do things like uh, wedge pressures where you're basically um, getting an indirect measurement of, of, the, of the force that's being exerted by certain parts of the heart. Um, and you can get measurements of, of venous pressure coming into the hearts and a bunch of other you know, really valuable things. Um, this kind of relates us to the next thing, though, which is angiography. So the term angiography is not unique to the heart, right? Angiography means that you're visualizing arteries, okay? So uh, when you're visualizing arteries with an, with, uh, with an angiogram, you're using uh, radiation, right? You're using typically, you know, traditionally it's plain film x-ray. So can you normally see blood vessels on x-ray? Of course not. Okay, so what do you have to do in order to visualize a blood vessel? Contrast. Use contrast, exactly. So the best way to do that is not to just pump the person full of a ridiculous amount of contrast. It's to use a catheter, and you basically go in and you uh, release a, a smaller amount of, of radio contrast agent uh, that's going to show up as radiopaque, so opaque, white on an x-ray. Uh, and you want to release it right near where you want an image. Okay, so you're going to release it right into the, the, the vessels that you want to, uh, to take a look at. So here's what that means. Okay. <clears throat> this is a coronary angiogram. Okay, so you're looking at the blood vessels that are supplying the heart. And here it's going to plain film, black and white. Um, the white stuff is you're seeing the filling of coronary blood vessels with this radio contrast agent. So, what you should see in a normal healthy blood vessel is nice kind of smooth contoured lines where you see kind of the, the inside walls of the blood vessels. Remember that you're visualizing with this 
um, the inside of the walls, not the outside of the walls. So what you see here, where there's this big arrow pointing at, is a spot where um, you see that it's tapered down. Okay. So what you can imply here, and I'll tell you, we'll spoil it, that it's atherosclerosis. So we're going to touch on that a bit today. But atherosclerosis is um, fatty plaque deposition on the inner walls of blood vessels. Okay. So with this kind of imaging, you can't actually visualize the plaques themselves, but you can imply that they're there based on the fact that they're occupying space and narrowing the available space in the lumen for blood to travel through, and so it looks like this little tapering down or narrowing of that blood vessel. That makes sense? Okay, so the question becomes, <laughs> we said uh, a second ago, uh, you, you wanna use a catheter and get in and uh, release that contrast agent in the neighborhood of what you wanna visualize. So how do you get there? So how do you get a catheter into the coronary uh, arteries? Say that again? Uh, the one valve that opens up into the artery. Okay, so you're on the right track. You're on the track. So that, that actually is, is really important. What you're talking about is that, that, that the coronary arteries branch off of a particular place that's right next to a valve, right? Now, you need to know what valve that is, because that's going to be really relevant. Right. Okay. So, again, I asked the question, how do you get a catheter into a coronary artery? Push it back up through a vein. Okay. So that's a common misconception. So I want you, us to all to understand together why that's not correct. Okay. So. Let's say you puncture a vein, right? So you know, same way you would kind of tra traditionally take, you know, do a vein puncture, take blood. Superficial is easy to access, heals quickly, blah, blah, blah. But let's say you're trying to introduce a catheter and you put it in, let's say your median cubital brain right here or a big vein in the leg or wherever. And you start snaking it back towards the heart. Where will it end up? Follow, this is why we talked about the very first thing we talked about today, right? Is, is, is circuits, blood vessel anatomy. So follow this, let's all go through this together. If I put it in a vein, it will eventually end up where? In which part of the heart? In the right atrium, right? So this will end up in my superior vena cava, because it's upper limb, right? And it's gonna get into the right atrium. Then where do you go from there? Okay, you only got one so keep going, right ventricle, yeah. and then keep going. To the pulmonary artery, keep going. Now we have a problem, yeah. right? Because when you go into the lungs, you're going from a pulmonary artery, right, into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller blood vessels. And then, oops, we get stuck. That's not going to work, right, because you didn't get anywhere near the coronary artery. So how do you do it instead? You're on to it early when you said, the coronary arteries branch right off of this spot in the aorta, right? It's next to the aortic valve. That's what you're talking about. So now give me a, a, a better way that we can actually access those vessels. You got to go through an artery. Exactly right. So this is the point here of this diagram where you have to feed it into an artery, <laughs> and it could be the femoral artery, right? It often is, or it could be you know something up somewhere else, but it has to be an artery. 
and you're basically, in this example, you're feeding it back up, backwards through the uh, aorta, and then you're going to eventually, right before you get to that aortic valve that you were describing, you're going to have those branches of the coronary uh, vessels, right, the left and the right. So that is how you would have to get in that way. And you'd go in and you'd release your contrast agent and then you'd snap your x-rays and then you get a visual. Make sense? Okay. So there are reasons why in a cath valve you would go in through a vein if you're trying to get pressures of the, say, the right side of the heart. But if you're trying to visualize the coronary arteries, it has to be this or something like this. Um, would you just something like this? Or would I stand up, right? I believe so, but I think there are uh, situations where you're not. So I think it can be either or. Okay, <laughs> so uh, other tests that you might see. Uh, Doppler, what, what is Doppler? Ultrasound, exactly. So you can get real-time uh, real vis um, visuals of blood, throw, blood flow through vessels. Uh, that's good. Um, of course, you can also do blood tests. So things you're looking for in the blood test that are relevant to cardiovascular function, like uh, enzymes. We'll talk about some enzymes that are released when there's damage to the heart and say a, a heart attack. Or more basics, you can look at electrolytes, stuff that's relevant to the heart, again, like sodium, potassium, or calcium. Uh, you can look at longer term stuff, so um, blood lipids, right? fats in the blood like triglycerides, like the various cholesterols, quote unquote, um, really talking about lipoproteins, right? HDLs, LDLs, etc. Um, you can also look at uh, blood gases. So um, if you want to get the best sense of how well oxygenated the blood is, you need to take it from an artery rather than a vein because you want to grab it before it gets to the peripheral tissues and you know, you, you offload some oxygen. Okay, <laughs> so here is where uh, I'll try not to get too far off the rails, okay? <laughs> um, general treatment measures for cardiac disorders. So we're going to talk some diet and exercise stuff, and we're going to talk some, uh, some medication stuff. So diet first, okay? And this is usually where the most, con actually, no. That's contentious. Let's talk about exercise, because that's really, you can't really debate this, okay? So <laughs> exercise happens to be good for your cardiovascular system. Shocking, I know, all right? It's good for your heart, it's good for your blood vessels for a bunch of reasons, okay? So exercise is, uh, is well demonstrated that it, it alters your blood lipids in a very positive way. Uh, so let's, let's talk, let's, let's briefly discuss what it is that I'm talking about. When people talk about blood cholesterol, right? I jump ahead a couple of slides here. Okay. When people talk about blood cholesterol, what they're really talking about are lipoproteins. Okay. So the word lipoprotein is a is a term for basically this transport molecule that uh, moves around lipids and proteins in the blood. Remember that lipids are not water soluble, right? Fat and water don't mix, so they need to be packaged up in this way that it can actually transport them through the blood. So we have various different kinds of lipoproteins, and they are of differing density depending on what is in them. Okay, so you have your HDLs, right, high density lipoproteins, and you have your LDLs or low density lipoproteins. Okay, so. People, the, the density difference means if one is high density, it means there's relatively more protein and less of the fats, like cholesterol. Okay? 
A low density means there's less of the protein, although it is still there, it needs to be, and more of the fats. It's less dense. Okay? So as a side note, these are not the only lipoproteins we have. There are actually intermediate density lipoproteins. There are very low density lipoproteins, and there's a couple of even smaller ones. Okay? But these two, right, are the two that get the most press. Okay, so your HDLs, the high density lipoproteins, are what are colloquially referred to as the good cholesterol. Okay, and the LDLs are what are referred to as the bad cholesterol. Okay, again, cholesterol is cholesterol is cholesterol. Uh, what we're really talking about is how the blood lipids are packaged up. Okay, now, is cholesterol a bad thing? It is not, okay? You need it to live. It is in every single cell of your body, uh, and it is also the basis uh, upon which we build all of our steroid hormones and a bunch of other important things in the body. So it is certainly not the enemy. It is necessary for life, okay? <coughs> now, we're gonna, <coughs> we're gonna come back to, uh, in a little bit, what general idea of why HDLs are good and LDLs are bad, but I will say that there is definitely some debate on how these things interact. Now, HDL is good, LDL is bad. Exercise will increase your HDLs and it will decrease your LDLs. So exercise by itself will dramatically alter your blood lipid levels, your cholesterol levels, independent of what you do putting stuff in your mouth, okay? It makes, it, independent of any kind of dietary change whatsoever, exercise has a positive effect on HDLs and LDLs in the opposite direction. Yeah, so it, uh, it, it not, no, you're basically gonna be on a statin for life, yeah. Uh, so, but for, that's relatively rare. <laughs> so for everybody else, then it's gonna have that positive effect. Uh, now, what kind of exercise? It's a reasonable guess. <laughs> cardio. <laughs> Why is it called cardio? Anyway, uh, yes, cardio is, is good for this. So is strength training. So is pretty much everything. Okay? The reality is that the best exercise for a patient is one they will do, period. Right? You could have the magical exercise. You could say that swimming is you know, the best overall exercise or you know, uh, um, cross-country skiing is you know, shown to be like an, a fantastic full-body exercise. It doesn't matter if the person's not going to do it. Okay? So the reality is that work with them to find something that they can do and are willing to do and maybe even are excited about doing, uh, and that's what they should be doing because it's certainly a, a good start. Okay. Uh, this one next, cessation of smoking. I'm hoping that I don't have to explain this any further by this point, okay? But smoking causes <coughs> a tremendous amount of damage to the inner lining of blood vessels, is an enormous risk factor for cardiovascular disease, blah, blah, blah. Tom keeps talking about this. There's a reason. Okay? <coughs> the last one is, is diet. And this one's where, where uh, things, quite frankly, can get confusing because there is a lot of information about there, and a lot of it uh, is contradictory. So. The recommendation on there to decrease total fat intake is not necessarily accurate, okay? Yet you, don't, you do need fat to live as well, okay? So <coughs> the reason that you will <coughs> unfortunately still see this recommendation goes back a few decades, 
Okay, and I think we've talked about this before, but it relates to all right, slide 37. So this is what will probably be our last topic of the day, atherosclerosis. And I used that term earlier today. Okay, so the top picture there is a normal aorta. You've taken a aorta out of the body and sliced it lengthwise and opened it up, and it's nice and smooth and healthy, and you can see these holes, which are basically tributary vessels that are branching off of the aorta. The one on the bottom is also an aorta, but it's an aorta that has been infiltrated with an enormous amount of um, atheromatous plaques, so these fatty plaques that, if you can imagine, fold that back into a 3D cylinder shape, it's occupying a tremendous amount of, of space inside and it's clogging up that vessel. This is exactly what's happening to a smaller, on a smaller scale uh, in that image when we were looking at the, the coronary vessels earlier. Okay, so there's infiltration of the walls of the artery and then by this fatty plaque and they're uh, occupying space. So, it's not, it stands to reason and it's not, it's kind of, ex it's not really surprising that when we found this out, so all these people are dying of heart disease and strokes. So you open up their blood vessels and oh, they're full of fat. Well, it must be fat that's the problem, right? This is the lipid hypothesis of cardiovascular disease. And that kind of precipitated this whole generation of, uh, well, fat is the enemy, so we need to go low fat, all right? And that was probably a pretty big mistake because it turns out that the amount of, uh, it's not just what you eat, and your body regulates this stuff fairly tightly, okay? So cholesterol is a good example. There is a pretty minimal relationship between the amount of cholesterol you put in your mouth and the amount of cholesterol that ends up in your blood, right? Your body regulates that really tightly, okay? Um, but there is a lot of other stuff going on. And the long and the short of it is that something is causing damage to the inner lining of blood vessels. And we've touched on this before, right? Smoking, let's go back to that well, okay? So how does smoking lead to cardiovascular disease? All right, you inhale it, then what? It gets into your bloodstream, it travels through your body, and in traveling through blood vessels, it's the chemicals that are present in cigarette smoke are causing inflammatory damage to the inner lining of blood vessels. And when your body experiences, any tissue experiences inflammatory damage, what does it do? tries to heal it, right? What if you keep causing inflammatory damage over and over and over? You will eventually get some kind of more permanent solution, some kind of scar tissue, some kind of buildup, some kind of your body's trying to essentially patch up the damage. And that's what's happening here, okay? Your body is using fats like cholesterol and things like, uh, like platelets and other proteins to essentially patch up these holes, and a hole is not the best word for it, these damaged regions uh, where damage has been done to the inner lining of blood vessels, right? And so we open the vessels up, we find all this fat, and we're like, oh, well, fat's the problem. Well, it's not, okay? Again, uh, it's the same reason that uh, diabetics have a tremendous amount of cardiovascular disease, right? The, the constantly elevated blood glucose levels causes damaging stimulus to inner lining of blood vessels. We do similar kinds of things. So. Anyway, back to that recommendation, all right? <laughs> so back in the 80s, we said, well, let's just not eat fat anymore. And so we saw all sorts of uh, low-fat alternatives in all sorts of foods, right? So 
if you're marketing a food and you take all the fat out of it, which is delicious, by the way, all right, it's, it, it's, got a, it's, it's got a nice texture to it, it makes things taste good, what do you have to put in your food to replace that and make people actually eat, want, like it enough to buy it? Exactly, right? And so we ran into this problem where all of a sudden you have all these low-fat options, but they're packed full of sugar. And what happened to cardiovascular disease rates? Well, they didn't go down, all right? <laughs> so now we have this problem. Uh, and so, again, that, that part of it relates back to a couple of other things. You know, the, the, the diabetes problem that I was talking about a second ago. Um, the fact that when you eat tremendous amounts of sugar, uh, you tend to, when you have extra energy stores available, our body starts to pack on adipose tissue. And being obese is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, independent of what you're currently doing with diet and exercise. The fact that you are obese by itself is a risk factor. Okay, so that's a problem. Anyway, so the general recommendation of decreased fat intake is not accurate. I can tell you that if you want to live a long life and if you want to be, you know, have a better shot at, at avoiding cardiovascular disease, what you should probably consider doing is significantly decreasing your intake of animal fats. That's a pretty basic proven fact. Okay? So, yep. So, what about people who have gone a high-fat diet, like keto? Yep. Keto diet, so Keto, so keto is different, and okay. to be to be fair, um, well, keto as a fad diet is relatively new. It's been around for a while. Um, the difference is in the ketogenic diet, um, you are yes, you're eating a high fat diet, and that can come with some consequences depending on what kinds of fats you're eating. But the other end of it is that you're eating an extraordinarily low carbohydrate diet, and so the what uh, there are changes going on metabolically in the body that make it that you're burning enough energy that it, it doesn't ha present the same risk factor as if you were eating a lot of both. Yeah, that's my current understanding of what we know, but that, but to be fair, there are known risks of taking in animal fats. And yeah. so if that, so there are different ways about going, uh, going about uh, doing a ketogenic diet, right? And if the way that you do it is, you know, effectively the bacon diet, which technically is keto, right? Then there are some consequences associated with that. Yeah. Yes? Why not reduce inflammation? That is a that is exactly the point. So but what do you what do you a specific suggestion? What do you mean? What diet what diet <laughs> really what can you do to reduce inflammation? Uh, quite honestly, as far as we understand, if you want to be, if you put a gun in my head and said pick one, plant based. Yeah, yeah, you make that face, right? That's fine. It's fine. It's, listen, listen, that's fine. Yeah, but you make it when I say things. You, but you made the same face earlier when I said, when I said decrease, decrease uh, animal fats. The reality, guys, is it's more, it's more complicated than just that, okay? It really is. So, <laughs> uh, I didn't want to get into this. Um, it's okay, it's okay, it, it's okay. Um, <laughs> after I said it wouldn't go off the rails. Plant-based diets can be very, very valuable, okay? But the benefit of a real, true, good plant-based diet is not only in not eating animals, right? One of the, one of the significant benefits of a, of a plant-based diet is eating whole plants, okay? Is eating 
everything that comes along with it, is eating all the micronutrients that come along with eating, with eating whole foods and, and plants, okay? So I could eat a box of cereal for breakfast and a box of cereal for lunch and a box of cereal for dinner, and that's technically vegetarian, right? Is that necessarily a good idea as far as my nutrient intake, my longevity, my inflammatory status, or any of that stuff? No, it's not, right? So the problem becomes not just you know, what you're not eating, but also what you are eating, okay? And so we'll circle back to the, to the, you know, the, animal, the animal diets question. It's unquestionable, and I'm sure I'm gonna piss some people off, but it's, it's not debatable that humans over time have evolved to be omnivores, okay? Humans developmentally are meant to eat a whole bunch of different foods, right? And that means lots of plants, and that means meat when it's available, etc. okay? Our current Western diet doesn't resemble that, okay? We live in a time of abundance. We eat way too much meat, right? I'm guilty of this too. I'm not standing up here saying, you all are bad, right? Because I do too. But it's not just that, it's also what's in it, right? It's also how it's raised. It's, it's, you know, there is a significant difference that occurs in nutrients and in your blood lipids if you eat meat that's raised, say, you know, pasture-raised cows, for example, that eat just grass like cows are supposed to, versus if you have cows in a factory farm that are eating, you know, s stuff, uh, high-density uh, caloric stuff like corn and being fed all sorts of other stuff. and there are major differences in those two meats. And so it's not just a one versus the other, it's a quality thing as well. So it's, it's really, this is part of why dietary discussions get so complicated, right? Because there are so many different factors. And the end of the day, there never, ever, ever will be one diet that works for everybody. It's just not possible. We're too genetically different. We have too many different preferences, right? But we're speaking in general terms, Michael Pollan said it best, right? Eat, right? Eat, eat, eat real food, mostly plants, right? It's not that, let's say it's, it's simple, it's not easy, but it's, it's relatively simple. You know what? I would eat a lab-grown lab meat burger if it was shown to be safe and if it tasted good. And for sustainability purposes, that's probably a good idea, but that's a totally, totally different discussion. All right, it's ethical, sustainable, all that stuff. That's all like, that's, that's a totally different discussion. Anyway, okay. This other thing, general weight reduction, this is what I was referring to earlier. Um, so independent of what you are currently doing diet and exercise wise, the, uh, the fact that somebody is currently obese has this hormonal pathway associated with it that, that makes you at greater risk for cardiovascular disease, period. So uh, no matter how you do it, uh, losing uh, some weight if you're, if you're in that category is beneficial. All right, well, let's talk about some meds. Have you guys done farm class yet? Okay, all right, so uh, some, some yes, some no, okay, that's, that's fine. We're gonna talk pretty generally. Okay, uh, vasodilators, right? We know what those do. They open up blood vessels, so you're gonna decrease uh, blood pressure. We're gonna talk about a specific example uh, for treating angina, not today, but later, uh, in nitroglycerin. It's a vasodilator. You use it to open up blood vessels when you need greater blood flow to the heart. Uh, beta blockers. Uh, what beta blockers do is they are inhibiting the activity of uh, beta adrenergic receptors, so receptors in the heart that respond to uh, sympathetic innervation. 
Okay, so beta blockers can be useful for treating dysrhythmia, but also uh, are, are a commonly used med for treating high blood pressure. Okay, um, similar with calcium channel blockers, um, calcium is important for the contraction of the heart muscle, and so if you if you have a calcium channel blocker being used, it's going to decrease the contractility of the heart, and it's also used as uh, as a good uh, antihypertensive med as well. Uh, digoxin, I will not test you on this, I promise, because Slide says it's treat, used as treatment for heart failure, and my current understanding is that it is no longer used for that. And so I will not ask you that. Antihypertensives, super, super common, super important. I think I've talked about this before, but um, how high, high blood pressure tends to beget more high blood pressure, and so it's important to manage this stuff early on because um, high blood pressure itself is a damaging stimulus to the inner lining of blood vessels, and so it can cause stiffening of the vessels and creation of more high blood pressure, and we have this kind of feed-forward mechanism. ACE inhibitors, right? Hopefully you don't have to go into that. Right? ACE inhibitors, they'll block that conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, ultimately inhibiting that eventual increase in blood pressure. Diuretics, uh, this is used for a bunch of reasons. I uh, said earlier that uh, uh, elevated blood volume means an elevated blood pressure. And so uh, diuretics are used to manage hypertension by offloading fluid from the body, right? You pee it out, that means that your body is going to rebalance uh, fluid stores uh, in the body, and so you'll essentially decrease blood pressure by offloading fluid out of the body. It's also important when we talk about things like congestive heart failure, which will be one of the later topics in this unit, uh, but in congestive heart failure, um, there are different types left and right, but in both, you're pooling fluid somewhere in the body, and so these are useful, again, to help uh, shift fluid and offload it from the body. Anticoagulants, uh, those will be for people who are known to be clot formers. We'll talk about clots a little bit later. And cholesterol-lowering drugs, those are your statins, okay? Uh, Lipitor, Crestor, those are the common ones. Um, the, the goal of a, of a statin drug is to reduce levels of LDL in the blood, okay? How else did I say you can reduce LDL in the blood? Go for a walk, good. All right, uh, this slide here, you can cross it right off, 33. If there is a drug that I want you to know, I will tell you. Okay, just check where we're at. Okay, we can finish this. Uh, so. You're going to see these terms uh, in, uh, in a few other contexts later on, but we'll just kind of get into the beginnings stages of it now. Arteriosclerosis versus atherosclerosis. They look similar, but they are different, okay? Sclerosis means hardening, scarring, okay? So arterios, they're both relating to, 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 to arteries, okay? But arteriosclerosis is the more general term for hardening of the arteries um, in the relative absence of fatty plaque buildup. Atherosclerosis means there is hardening of the arteries and infiltration by those fatty plaque buildups, the atheromas that we saw in that image right there of the aorta. Okay, so arteriosclerosis, where you have hardening of the arteries, um, it, it's, that's going to be caused by anything that's going to cause damage to the inner lining of the blood vessels. So that's your smoking, that's your diabetes, that's your you know, um, uh, lack of exercise, that's, there's, a whole pick, there's a whole bunch of different reasons that, that could occur. Now what happens, again, uh, in, the, in arteriosclerosis is when you cause damage, right, so the body lays down some kind of 
uh, scarring mechanism, something to, to try to heal it, and it will eventually start hardening those arteries. This is where you see sometimes we'll talk about um, calcium deposits, for example, right? Um, it's not the calcium itself that is hardening the arteries, but it's part of what the body does in response to tissue damage. So the end result is when you harden an artery, uh, it loses its relative elasticity. So arteries are supposed to be, right, they're muscular and they're elastic, so that when you send a pulse of blood through it, they're supposed to stretch and then snap back, okay? So a vessel that doesn't stretch because it's lost its elasticity due to the scarring, is the, what's the pressure inside that vessel going to be like? It's going to be it's going to be higher, right? Because it doesn't comply with those pulses of blood. So you have this stiff vessel passing the, the pulses of blood through it, and you have a much greater pressure inside. So again, high blood pressure begets more high blood pressure. Arteriosclerosis begets more high blood pressure, and on and on we go. Okay. So again, compare that to atherosclerosis. That's the depositing of the fatty plaques. It's not just fats. Um, there's other stuff in there. There is, uh, there's usually clot-like stuff. There's platelets. There's, there's uh, electrolytes like calcium. There's um, scar tissue kind of material in there too. Uh, and it thickens and obstructs vessels as we saw in that example there. We'll touch on that again. Um, so the last, uh, last couple of things here. This relates back to that quick discussion on the quote-unquote good and bad cholesterols. The basic thing that's, that, uh, that you should take away from this, and I will admit that this is a very incomplete explanation, okay? If you really want to learn about this, it, there's a lot more going on. But HDLs are going to transport lipids and cholesterol out of blood vessels towards the liver and tissues. LDLs are going to transport lipids and cholesterol into the blood. If you want to keep that kind of simplified version in your head, it will make the most immediate sense. Okay? So, HDLs good, LDLs bad. Now, <clears throat> a couple of risk factors. None of these should be big, uh, um, uh, big surprises. <laughs> we have non-modifiable factors and modifiable risk factors that lead to atherosclerosis. So non-modifiable ones. Age, okay? As you get older, you don't heal as well, things start to break down, and you're at greater risk for cumulative damage to uh, leading to atherosclerosis, okay? Um, gender, which gender is at a greater risk for atherosclerosis? Which sex is at a greater risk? Males, <coughs> to a point. Okay, what point? Uh, no, so um, this is independent of obesity. So males are, have a greater risk of all-cause cardiovascular disease, including atherosclerosis, um, until females hit menopause. After females hit menopause, then they start to even up those stats really quickly. Okay, so our basic explanation for that is estrogen seems to have a protective effect on blood vessels. That's when, when something happens like that relating to menopause and female hormones, it must be the estrogen. The reality is that we don't actually fully understand because uh, hormone replacement therapy does not continue that, that protective effect, okay? But the point is, pre-menopause, women have less atherosclerosis if you take everything else evenly. Uh, but once they hit it, start making estrogen, their rates go way up. Lastly, genetics, all right? Can't pick your parents, right? Is, is what it is. 
Uh, somebody mentioned something earlier about uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. That's a, a specific genetic disorder where you know, if, you, if you get those genes, then you have a really, really significantly elevated uh, uh, cholesterol levels in the blood, but that's a more rare thing. Modifiable, so these are things we can actually take control of, right? So obesity, I said independent of diet and exercise, it's a risk factor by itself, so uh, if you drop some of the weight, it's beneficial, independent of how you do it. Uh, being sedentary, right? If exercise is good, being sedentary is bad. That's not very, it's not, it's not terribly complicated. I really hope I don't have to explain the cigarette smoking again. Same thing with diabetes, same thing with the hypertension. Okay, those are all risk factors, things that are going to damage inner linings of blood vessels. Lastly, one you should know is smoking is a risk factor by itself, but for females, if they're on the pill, right, oral contraceptives, uh, and they smoke, there is a significantly increased risk factor, uh, risk for, um, for developing atherosclerosis. All right, that is as far as we're going to get today. Does anybody have any questions? All right, I will see you next week.